Sari. Hi, Jen. How are you? Hey. I'm good. This is our first time speaking post-election. Is that what you're about to say? <laughs> yes. I mean, I feel like we're in a different universe, so we it's, like, are. weird. Yeah. I think we probably sound a little lighter. I do. I feel a little lighter. Ellen Pau is also our first guest recording post-election. She started out at a venture capitalist firm in Silicon Valley called Kleiner Perkins, and eventually she filed a gender discrimination lawsuit against them because of how she was treated there. Uh, she lost, but this was all pre-Me Too. This was in 2012 when she filed that gender discrimination lawsuit, and she really started this thing, which I hope we ask her about, which is the Ellen Pau effect. Have you heard that? Yes. Yes, I have. I think most people know her when she was the CEO of Reddit. She banned revenge porn and hate groups on the site, which for some reason became controversial. And she eventually ended up stepping down. And now she has her own nonprofit called Project Include, which promotes diversity in tech, which is not a coincidence because she was really pushing the limits of inclusion and diversity when she was working within some of these companies. Yeah. And the Ellen Powell effect is interesting because like, you know, originally it was like, oh, this is a problem. But that, you know, over the like the long term trajectory is very different and women should be heartened by that. I remember when Me Too first, you know, really exploded in the fall of 17, people said the same kind of thing. They're like, oh, well, now this is going to hold women back because men aren't going to want to have them on business trips or men will be worried that women will accuse them of harassment. So to protect themselves, they're just going to box women out of power. Well, yeah, I think that that notion that women aren't going to be hired if they start filing lawsuits, it's just a scare tactic. Right. It's one of the things you have to plow through, right? It's one of the things you have to plow through because I think, you know, what we saw with Me Too was women band together and demand accountability and it happens. And the same with trying to combat um, hate um, and revenge porn and things like that as she did at Reddit. You know, now you see tech platforms are doing more to actually do that. You know, Twitter is gotten much more aggressive about dealing with, you know, misinformation and, and, and hate and things that aren't true, blocking the president, even muting the president. Right. And it's all about power. Like yeah, what you're doing by telling people that they can't post hateful commentary on Twitter is you're taking away their power to post hateful commentary. And then what you're doing by telling men that they can't harass women at work is you're taking away their power. So it's like a very similar context. It's, it's, it's much harder to take away someone's power than it is to just not give it to them in the first place. But we've, you know, We've done that already <laughs> on both these platforms. So it is interesting. I'm really interested to talk to her about that. Absolutely. Let's get to it. All right, sister, let's do it. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Ellen Powell, thank you very much for joining me on Just Something About Her. Thank you for having me. When I started my career, which was like in the late 80s, early 90s, I thought that the women's rights movement was sort of over. Um, I thought that question had been solved. I understood that there was a lag time in implementation. I started working on Capitol Hill. Those were my first jobs. 
And I sort of like watched how the women in the office worked and, you know, saw that they like kind of kept their head down, worked a little harder than the men, took on problems that weren't necessarily their responsibility, but felt like the need to constantly prove themselves and be sort of in a help meet submissive role. I've read some things that you've said about women uh, sort of molding themselves into the workplace in that way. What did you walk into the workplace thinking was women's abilities, roles, opportunities, expectations? What was that like for you? Yeah. To hear about, talk about like the late 80s, early 90s, which is when I got out of school and started to work. Like we did think everything was going to be fair. I don't know why, but there was this message that I had that you could succeed in anything. You know, you could work as a lawyer and, you know, I went to a fancy law firm. And, you know, the first summer that I was there, they sent a woman home for wearing pants. And I was like, whoa, this is <laughs> oh not my God. the place wow. that I thought it was going to be. Yeah, she, the partner said she should not be wearing pants and she had to go home and change. And I was a shock, like, oh, my God, we are not anywhere near fairness or equity here. And it was kind of a wake up call that continued on throughout but but then I thought, oh, it's just that one partner, right? Like that's not mm-hmm. a bigger problem. It's just that one partner. He's such a you know antiquated guy. And then you see, oh, there's just another partner, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't take any women to the hockey games with him. And I was like, all right, that's a little bit weird. But you know, I don't really want to watch hockey with him anyway. And he just seems like another anomaly. Right. And then there'd be the other guy who wouldn't take women to his big twelve, thirteen person steak dinners. And you're like, oh, here's another one of those guys. But you never think about it. You know, it wasn't until later I was like, wow. But then I thought, well, maybe it's the firm's problem. Maybe it's like just this firm is problematic. Then you just keep going through the system and you keep making excuses for everybody because nobody's talking about the huge problem that's sitting out there. And eventually, like, you can't ignore the elephant in the room. None of the women were promoted. Like, it wasn't just me. And these other women had brought in good projects and had great successes and had great experiences, but they weren't valued for the work that they were doing. And if that's the case, it's because they were put on projects that weren't valued. And why did that happen? Right? Like all of a sudden you realize like there's no room out of the fact that there actually is systemic discrimination happening. Mm -hmm. That I had this opportunity with Kleiner where people weren't treated fairly and it wasn't just me. And when it came to a head was when I saw that there was a promotion round, none of the women got promoted and almost all the men got promoted. Mm -hmm. And another female partner had done this research showing that the women partners had better investments and had better track records than the men did. And, you know, and I could just look at like backgrounds, like we'd all been at Kleiner longer. We had an average better education than the men did. We had longer work experience before coming to Kleiner. Like, on many different metrics, we were more qualified and yet mm-hmm. not a single one of us got promoted. So it wasn't just about me not doing a good job and me having not spoken up enough or spoken up too little, like all the feedback was inconsistent. It became very sharp in my mind. Like it wasn't about me not doing all the right things because I could never process the, the feedback that I got. It was never consistent. It was really like they weren't promoting women. And there was nothing that we could do about it. We brought it up and nothing happened. And then I decided, well, I'm comfortable suing. You know, I don't have this huge 
fancy life that I need to fund. You know, I live pretty simply. I can definitely afford it, you know, and somebody has to show them that what they're doing is not right. And I can't do it from within. You know, I need to get this out in the open so other people can see and tell them that this is not the way to do things and that this is not fair and it's got to change. And then how did you feel going through that? You know, once you've actually filed the suit, that was difficult. But did you feel in going through it that it was drawing attention to the problem, the manner in which you wanted it to? Yes. I had talked to a few women who had sued investment banks before Mm -hmm. I decided to sue. And they all said, don't do it. It's a nightmare. It's going to upend your life. The people are so nasty. You're up Mm -hmm. against like these huge resources. You are forced to um, lose so much of your privacy. It's so hard to win and people will turn on you and your friends will turn on you and people will lie on the stand. It's just such a draining, painful process. But when I asked them, well, do you regret it? Not a single one said that they regretted it. So I love hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a certain type of person, but you got to ask the second question, like, would you do it again? And, you know, they all felt very good about like, pushing for change and for getting the truth out there. It's very hard to get justice in this area. And it was interesting to see that there was a ton of media coverage. The courtroom was packed and it was standing room only most days. Kleiner had four press people every day in the courtroom or outside the courtroom trying to manage the spin on it. And I had nothing. I had, you know, I was still working at Reddit at the time. So I didn't have time. I didn't have energy. And my lawyers were very conservative and said, do not talk to the press. So we were at a disadvantage there. But you could see over the course of the five week trial, the coverage definitely changed. After hearing for five weeks about all of these different things that had happened, and a lot of the reporters covering it were women and hearing their experiences, I think a lot of the kind of old line male reporters had a different perspective. And it was interesting to see that change take place over the five weeks. In the beginning, like people were like, this woman must be crazy. How can she say that about this tech industry that is so meritocratic, that's so egalitarian and all of the things that we had assumed about it. And Kleiner at the time was pushing this huge campaign about how I was a problem person. I was a poor performer. I was a complainer. And that was a narrative that always gets used in this type of litigation, but they had a huge team of people pushing it. And it was easier to believe than, hey, this great industry that we think is so perfect actually is incredibly sexist in addition to being racist and ageist and all these other problems. I do feel like it sort of shook people out of the sense that because something happens in Silicon Valley, because it happens in sunny California, There's always and everything that happens in that world is like it's surrounded by a lot of language that sounds progressive and positive. I mean, I sometimes find, you know, I've worked in Democratic politics for a long time that Democratic men can be most blind to race or gender biases because they're so certain that they're not racist or so certain that they're not sexist. Yeah. And that like causes its own blindness. This is one of the reasons why I I support bringing the ERA back and trying to have those debates, because I feel that just having the debates around a ratification process would unearth the sort of aha moments that you're talking about. I mean, women who challenge norms, as you have done, they draw fire. You move forward, you draw fire. That is what happens. But in that process, if you have the 
wherewithal to walk into the fire. Eventually, what comes to light is just like more information, more shared experiences. I feel like that is where you get real change because otherwise women are are more likely to think that they just have too much to lose or not enough standing. I think also for men, like it's very hard to process all of the data out there that show that, you know, women and people of color and especially women of color get different salaries. They get different um, opportunities. They're not funded the same way. They don't get to work at the top of the corporate ladder. You know, somebody stopped me on the street and said, the person who sits next to me at my office told me about her experiences. And it's true, right? Like this was somebody that he really trusted that he worked closely with and believed and having her tell her story made a difference more than any of the data or anybody else's story could. To be able to tell your story, it doesn't have to be public. It doesn't have to be to a lot of people, but the people that you do tell can make a huge difference and it can change their perspective and their behavior, I hope. We're going to take a second to pay some bills. See you on the other side. And we're back with Ellen Powell. We're still pushing through um, the most important election of our lifetime, but it was one that was riddled with misinformation and questions about freedom of speech. I feel like you were ahead of the curve in a couple of problems in Silicon Valley. You know, one is discrimination, lack of diversity, need for inclusion, but then also understanding this problem on the need to censor misinformation, hate speech, that kind of thing. At what point did you realize, because, you know, I remember in the 90s, um, I was working for President Clinton and, you know, tech was utopian. Silicon Valley was utopian. And you didn't see the dark side of what this could bring until much later. At what point did you see the propensity for the internet and tech to, you know, be a pretty dark place? It was there from the beginning in very, very small pockets. And I think Uh it was, you know, sites like Reddit, you know, 4chan, and then eventually, you know, other sites too, that really allowed those small pockets to fester you know, you didn't have to have a way into the dark net to find them. They were there for you to see very easily and with everybody else in the rest of the country and eventually the world. So that started happening probably in, you know, the beginning of this decade, the beginning of the 2010 decade. I can't believe we're already in 2020. I wish we were over. Oh, we are. Oh my God. We're already in. Yeah. So I think I consider consider this the end of the last decade because- I want a new decade. I want 2021 to be very different. I know. I'm like, oh, the, the beginning 2010 of this decade. is like when you felt that is what you're saying. Yeah. In the early 2010, 2011, and it got worse and worse. I think it's interesting to hear the people who started these companies and ran them now have a different approach to it, where you hear Ev Williams from Twitter say, you know, this is not what I created Twitter for. And there's a problem like this whole platform of having this open place for free expression is not working. Like this is not what we wanted to build. You hear the same thing from, you know, the guy who started 8chan, Um, you know, the guy who started 4chan Mm -hmm. has sold it and ran from it. So there's a lot more realization that things are not perfect. And I think that started around 2014, 2015. You know, it started earlier when we had a lot of problems, but that's when it started getting public attention and it became really 
too big to ignore. And only this year have the platforms really started to attack it, which is, you know, you, you waited five years and that, you know, yeah. six years and it's gotten so much worse on your watch. I felt like they just sat and watched it get worse and worse and say, we just don't have a way of dealing with it and and felt like that was enough. But when you were CEO of Reddit, you were sort of at the forefront of this and got a lot of heat from it um, and trying to limit harassment on the platform by banning revenge porn and hate groups. Walk us through that. Like, how did you decide that you needed to do that? What year was that and what that process was like and what the reaction that you got from your own staff was? Yeah, it was 2014. We started doing the work through 2015. Mm -hmm. I think the staff was nervous about it. In that time period, we're really nervous about our users. They would harass us. They would dox us, you know, share our private home addresses to get people to come after us. Mm -hmm. They would call us. There were some people who got swatted where, you know, somebody calls about a fake emergency to try to get a SWAT team to come after you. Oh my and God. there have been people who've had that happen to us, luckily not at Reddit um, while I was there. So there was a lot of fear around change that would potentially anger our community. You know, when I came on board, it was with the intention of making changes. And my thought was, there's a problem on the internet. And if we right. can fix it on Reddit... Right. There's no excuse for anybody else because we had right. more toxic community. We had the more hateful content. We were, you know, at that time, probably one of the worst sites on the Internet, especially at the scale that we were at. And do you feel that um, if the leaders of these companies were dedicated to solving the problem, they could do it? Or do you need better tech, better policies to really combat it? You know, if the CEOs were really committed, they could do it because it is not rocket science. And if you are able to tell that a person is interested in buying a blue pair of Nike sneakers at 10 p.m. (laughs) at night, then you can figure out that somebody has done something that's harassing or hateful. Right. I mean, the amount of technology, the amount of talent and the amount of dollars they have is, uh, you know, just unimaginable. It's just a matter of turning it towards a different problem and trying to solve that problem. But they don't want to solve that problem. If you look at Facebook, you know, my understanding is that most of the employees who are on the content management team are Mm -hmm. workers for a third party contractor. Like they don't even work for Facebook. And what company doesn't have like the most important people to them working for them? It just shows that that's not that important to them. They don't need to have them on the Facebook direct payroll, and they don't really care that much of what they're doing because it doesn't really matter to them enough to have them be under their direct control. Why don't they want to deal with it? Because it just causes too much controversy. It's not as if they don't get heat for not dealing with the problem they do. They make their money from having all of this hateful content and from having all of this negative engagement. It drives engagement. It drives attention. It keeps people coming back and it makes it possible for them to have this unbelievable amount of growth and this unbelievable amount of wealth that's been generated from it. I mean, maybe it's just naive of me to think that because, you know, Silicon Valley and tech does approach things with so much this sense of egalitarianism that they are so motivated by just making money. But it seems um, sort of undeniable at this point that that's that's what's happening here. 
you know, I came into tech the same way you did, where I thought like, oh, this is such a great egalitarian industry. It's going to be about giving access to everyone, creating these great ways to communicate and to work and to connect people. And it's going to be this great bridge where people have access to all the world's information and anybody can access it. You don't have to you know, be in certain cities. You don't have to have access to certain universities. You can have that access just from your computer. And then you realize actually the problems are being solved are the problems that frankly, like these wealthy white men have experienced and they don't have a lens outside of that perspective. And all of these other problems are surfacing and they're not solving problems for the person who's living in a geographic area that doesn't have good internet connectivity. They're not solving the problem for the person who can't afford a computer. They're not solving these problems for people who are from different groups that get harassed on the internet because they don't see any of these problems. They don't experience them. And my suspicion is a lot of them don't have friends who are experiencing them. Right. They're in this little bubble where they tell each other everything is going great. Their boards look just like them. Everything is very homogenous. And that group just doesn't experience the internet the same way everybody else does. And for them, it looks like a huge success. They've got a billion people on the internet. They've got money coming in because advertisers are doing it. They've got this massive wealth that's being generated that they're getting the lion's share of. So it feels great. Their company feels successful to them. Why would they want to change to a way that they don't know that much about? They don't understand inclusion. They don't understand these problems. Let's just stick to what they know and keep making money. Right. The white male experience just dictates everything in terms of what we think of baseline experiences and what we think a real problem is. And if a real problem doesn't come into their line of vision, it can be seen as, you know, I feel like it can be seen as sort of frivolous. It's easy for profits to override those kinds of these, the concerns about how something impacts a different community, if it's not impacting the bottom line, or if it's not in their field of vision as an actual problem. Yeah, it's interesting, because I think they do think it's much smaller than it actually is, because they don't hear about that much their friends aren't experiencing it. They haven't experienced it. And it seems like it can't be that bad. I heard that a lot in the beginning of when these issues started coming to light. And um, with Gamergate, you heard a lot about like, it can't be that bad as these women were like fleeing their homes and trying to stay safe. Now, I think people are seeing that it's a problem, but there isn't a financial calculation around it. And maybe it will take litigation, maybe like a couple people suing these platforms for not doing enough when they should have known better will drive them to realize that actually there is a cost to it. And now I do need to take care of it. And actually it's not that expensive. Um, You've also talked about the bamboo ceiling for Asian women. Can you explain explain what that is and the sort of like model minority theory? Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of complexity for Asians and I feel a lot of ambivalence. Like we have a lot of discrimination against us. It's not as bad as what happens to black people and brown people in many ways. You know, so it always makes me feel like a little bit like I want to make sure that people understand that. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that our problems are worse, but it is something that happens. Like we get boxed into this idea of being this model minority where Asians will do the work and they won't complain. Like that's what I was told at Kleiner. Oh, we want to hire an Asian woman so that she would be subservient and do the work and not complain. 
and work really hard. You know, kind of like a tiger mom, but focused on me. Would they actually say that out loud? Yeah, I was joking, right? You know, in that uh, way that people joke and say things that are... There are no jokes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say that next time. That's great. Yeah. There are no jokes. There are no jokes. But that's the kind of model minority myth, like that Asians are good workers and they're going to um, be very productive and they're not going to complain and that you can put them on a project and it will get done. You know, it starts to be problematic Well, it's problematic in any case, but it gets even more problematic when, you know, it's that subservient part of it that prevents Asians from getting promoted to higher positions of all the populations in the workforce. Asians are the least likely to be promoted to the C-suite or, you know, I think even to higher managerial levels, Mm -hmm. because I think a big part of it is this assumption that they don't want to be promoted or they are not qualified as leaders. They're just good worker bees. Right. And then it ties into to this idea that there is a bamboo ceiling that prevents Asians from reaching those higher levels, those higher executive levels and management ranks. I find that I had that sort of experience just as, you know, as a young woman working, which was like, I would just dive for every ball, right? You could always count on me um, just to be sort of indispensable and always, um, you know, and I think that, you know, if I, if I reflected on it, I think it comes from a sense of having this fear that you don't actually belong there, right? You're going to be, if there's a problem that happens on your watch, you're going to be the first person to ask to leave because you don't actually belong there. So you always have to prove yourself or as something goes wrong, you know, if men weren't responsible for it, they wouldn't feel a sense of panic or guilt about it as I might just, even though whatever happened may not have been anything to do with me, but it's like something bad happened on my watch. Clearly it must be my fault, you know, but at the same time, it was like, I don't know what the answer is because I had to work really hard, be that resourceful to get my foot in the door and, you know, sort of play that role as the great number two, you know, just to get anywhere. But at the same time, you know, I mean, what I finally did was I realized, oh, I'm what I'm doing is by always being the great reliant number two, I'm helping this man's world work well for them. I'm just like perpetuating the power systems that keep women and people of color from having power because I'm just like making this go, you know, like they would say, oh, we can't do it without you. It's like, yes, I know. I know you can't do it without me, but so I should stop doing it (laughs) because this is not, it's not good. But do you, I mean, do you think about that? Because it's like, yeah, had to work hard in a certain way to get in um, get in the door and that, but then like, at what point do you challenge to expect more? Yeah. And first I want to say, I'm so sorry that was your experience because that is a hard way to live. And I think there was, you know, I think kind of a similar experience where you feel like you have to make sure that everything has to go right and that you're the only one who can do it. So you end up taking on all of these like really minor, like administration, you know, like very detailed, you know, in the weed tasks that you should be delegating, but everybody blames you if things don't go right. Yeah. That's what the word you use where you're the only one who could do it. It's like, you're the only one who could do it or you're the only one who will do it. Right. Right. I have a girlfriend who would stay late a lot um, during the Bob administration. And I would say, why are you doing that? She's like, well, somebody has to. And I was like, well, apparently not. 
right? <laughs> Apparently not because no one else but you thinks you have to do this. Right. You know, just like any good pep talk, it's really meant for yourself, right? So I would challenge her on this, but I did the same thing because it was like, <laughs> right, my like security blanket was being the person that did the thing that nobody else would do, yeah. you know, just like to make sure that everything ran okay. Um, and like, we feel that sort of obligation. Part of that also got me more of those assignments, right? Like I got really good at, right. you know, at staffing a meeting. So you end up staffing meetings instead of looking at investments. I got really good at like responding to email. Like I was fast and efficient. And I don't know <laughs> if the other person purposely was not good at it because he was smart enough to realize this is not a job I want or if he just wasn't good at it. Right. But you end up like, oh, I feel good because I'm recognized for doing a good job. But what is the reward, Right. 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 And I also think that we probably devalue that like running a good meeting is important and answering emails is important, but it's like, because it's like viewed as sort of like what the women do well, I think we discount that we probably don't, you know, value it financially the way we should either. Yeah. But you are the person who pushed back. You're the person that filed the lawsuit. You're the person that went to Reddit and, you know, took on the big problems there. Your mom seems to be someone who clearly believed in your abilities, didn't buy into gendered stereotypes, you know, thought that you and your sisters could do anything. Was she in your head pushing you to uh, to do these sort of pioneering things that brought you a lot of uh, notoriety, as they say, um, and a lot of fire? I think, um, like, I think of my mom as being very good at helping me with like my values, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's right and there's wrong, you know, she's an engineer, so it's very binary for her. So for me, it's like, she gave me this lens to look through and to see, like, when I see something wrong, I know it's wrong and I'm not going to try to rationalize it. And I'm not going to try to accept it. Like, I'm going to try to not be complicit in this problem. She is not somebody who would be like out there as an activist. But there's a Chinese proverb, which is, you know, the nail that sticks its head up gets hammered. So like, keep your head down, don't cause problems, like just go with the flow. And I think that's, you know, what made me so successful as part of this, like, model minority, you know, stereotype, because, you know, I didn't complain, I did work hard, I was subservient, right. And it fit into the stereotype. And that was very comfortable until it got to the point where I was like, hey, but what am I actually part of here? Like, how come we've never interviewed a black or brown person for an investing role after seven years and a hundred different candidates? Like, what is going on there? Why is there only one woman out of these 23 candidates for this partner role? You know, suddenly the data doesn't line up and you realize like things aren't the way that they should be. And all of a sudden you realize you should probably try to do something about that. You know, whenever I see a new story about entrepreneurs or a new startup, I click on it and I'm thinking, oh, will I not see two or three white men? <laughs> and it's almost always, you know, <laughs> just hoping maybe this time. Yeah. But it almost always is. We're going to take a quick ad break, but stick around and we'll be right back with Ellen Powell. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Ellen Powell. So tell tell me about Project Include, because I I think that, and I'm trying to do something about this myself, because I think we work so hard to kind of fit into the system that I have not previously had the room in my head to think about 
how do I get out of the system and create something different? And it's like, I, I can't keep up with the men that have big entrepreneurial ideas because I've been thinking so hard about how I fit in their world. I don't see the possibility, you know. Um, when I worked for Barack Obama, the women were like the last to leave. I think that where the men were off doing sort of interesting entrepreneurial things, left the White House, the women were the ones that stayed in the job where they knew it was expected of them. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like I worked really hard to get into this job to become a head of this office. I'm going to stay here the whole time. But you know, I know that there's all the problems for women in Silicon Valley with entrepreneurial shifting. You know, it's like that it's really hard to raise money and, you know, it's hard to it's hard to get people to invest in you. But I also in my own head, I struggle to see the path by which you do that. My brain has been geared towards fitting in and proving myself against an objective set of standards that I could see in a workplace, not building something on my own. So I'm interested to hear about project included in the work that you're doing now. But then also just that kind of question about women as entrepreneurs, how we can free ourselves to be, it's like, have that sense of possibility that I sometimes struggle with. So Project Include is a nonprofit that I started with seven other women, I think in 2000, end of 2015, we launched in 2016 and was really focused on like, how do we help CEOs build more inclusive startups. There's a big problem. The problems that I had seemed like they're very universal throughout the industry. Companies weren't figuring out how to do it. And I thought like, well, if I were a CEO, like when I was at Reddit, like we had some problems, nothing was better than most companies. I thought the CEO before me was a great CEO, you know, but there were problems. So Mm -hmm. like, I wish I had had a resource that would tell me like, what do these experts in the field think? What's a framework for looking at the problem and where are some more resources that I can go to? And that's what we created. We created a website which broke down all of the different areas where you should be thinking about inclusion and then, you know, a list of additional resources for each topic. And, you know, for us, it was very much like, first, it should be inclusive of everyone. So, so many companies think about, okay, I'm going to start with women because I have a daughter and that's going to make it more compelling to me. But when you're fixing for one small group of people, mm-hmm. you're not actually fixing the inclusion exclusion problem. You're bringing more people into the exclusive club, but you're leaving everybody else out. And then are you really bringing people in and making them fully included if your framework is still around an exclusion? So, you know, we're really pushing people like think about all the different types of people. <laughs> so many layers. Yeah. Yeah. And then the second part is like, it's not just hiring people. It's you know, your whole hiring yeah. process, it's your whole, you know, work experience from salaries to who's getting equity to performance reviews to how you fire people, how you promote people, like it's everything across employee life cycle. And then our third part is like the part that I think people really need to work on metrics. We should treat diversity and inclusion as we would any other business imperative and people should be measured on it and you should be measuring yourself on it. You should be measuring the whole company to see if you're making progress and to figure out what's working so you can do more of it and what's not working so you can do less of it. So pretty straightforward, but it's not the way people think about it. So we found, you know, a lot of people are actually interested. I think, you know, the part about, you know, it's, it is harder as a woman, it's harder as a person of color, it's hardest as a woman of color to get funding, to get these opportunities. But I always thought like, 
I've seen so many horrible male CEOs. I've seen so many horrible <laughs> male board members. Like I, I just, as CEO of Reddit, I didn't have oh. imposter syndrome because I'm like, God, there's so many people who get chances from nothing, who haven't worked at any other companies, who haven't managed people, who haven't you know, accomplished anything who are getting these opportunities. These kids, you know, for a while, the Kleiner model was like, let's get kids who dropped out of college and started a startup. So these kids don't even have a college degree. They don't have any understanding about like history or social emotional learning or, you know, like they don't know anything almost literally. And they're running these companies and, you know, they have all these opportunities. Why shouldn't these women be getting it? You know, why should I feel like I don't know anything? I've had like a ton of experience. I've seen a bunch of things and maybe I'm not going to, be perfect and maybe I'm gonna make mistakes, but it's not gonna be like some of these other mistakes I've seen. You know, we had one guy who I think he stole like a hundred million dollars from a startup that we funded. Right. Like I know I'm not gonna make that mistake. So I should just feel good about like the fact that I'm trying to do good work and I'm doing the best I can. I'm hiring the best people and we're making progress. And I don't need to like think about like maybe I don't have every single box checked because there are so many other people who have no boxes checked and I've got at least some, right? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the more effective responses to imposter syndrome that I've heard. Let me ask you one more question before you go. Um, I was interested uh, to read that Project Include has reached out to tech workers to learn about their experience during COVID. Um, What sort of work are you doing to encourage fair treatment and hiring during the pandemic? What kind of problems are these workers running into? Kind of three different problems. One you know, mental and emotional health issues yeah. where it's a strain, like, you know, they're cooped up inside for long periods of time. They're working with, you know, my internet connection isn't great, or, you know, I don't have that much space in my house. So I've got my kid working right next to me doing their schoolwork, or I've got to manage a sick relative who has COVID or who has some other physical illness that requires my attention or, you know, I have to work much harder because my partner has lost their job. Like there's just so much strain just from the situation. And then you see strain because, you know, managers aren't really equipped to handle this change to online. I haven't heard of a single company that has given additional training to talk about like, this is how you manage somebody when you can't be in physical proximity with them. And then um, the third piece is like, you know, there's a lot of exclusion where people are having these private side conversations. You can't see them in the hallway, so you don't know to join. Oh, you know, and and yeah. and sometimes there is like weird behavior, like you know, we saw from Jeffrey Tubin, where people don't understand the difference between home and work when they're not physically different. And the behavior that I'm doing at home all of a sudden ends up in my online workspace. Yeah, I hope there's not a lot of the Jeffrey Tubin, but yeah, 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 yeah. Um, as she often does, Sari, a producer, she's like, wait, I have another question, which is a good one to end on. If you could bear with us for one minute, which is the Ellen Powell effect. What do you hope that means today? I hope it means that when people have experiences that are bad, that they feel comfortable sharing those experiences and hopefully fighting for change so that we don't have to all have these same bad experiences that so many of us have had, that these changes can be systemic, that we're not changing a small piece at a time, that we're really making this huge change that, you know, we don't have to pick between like a slightly better place and 
a really bad place, but we can pick good places for us to work that where we really can all survive and thrive and work to the best of our capacity. I think people don't realize like if you have a company that's inclusive, it helps everyone. So that shy introvert is going to benefit from an inclusive organization. That Mm -hmm. person who has, you know, religious obligations and um, commitments at different times during the week will have a better experience. It's not just, you know, a race thing or a gender thing, although often those are the problems that are most prevalent and often, you know, have hate directed towards them. So it can be much worse, but, you know, it helps everyone. And then you have this community, you know, your workplace, like coworkers enjoy seeing each other and you have a much better experience for everyone. So that's the piece where I hope, you know, I hope we get there. I don't know if it has to come from the power effect or what, but like, that's where I hope we get to. I think it means that Ellen how uh, power effect is that things can be better than they are, but they're not going to change unless you're willing to take things on. But, you know, the pioneering women got to be willing to take a little fire. So thank you for being one of them. Oh, thank you. That was a nice way to think about the power effect. I hope it happens. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Yes. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope yes. we get to meet live at some point. I know someday it will someday it will happen. We have a we almost have a vaccine. So like in the next few years, someday yeah. we'll able to see people again. So thank you, Ellen. Thanks very much for, for joining us. Hi. Hi. Yes, I'm still here. So Ellen Powell, pretty interesting, huh? Very, she's very like interesting. Pe- she's been taking on a lot of tough fights like years ago. I know. That's what really got to me when I was doing the research was just like, this was all pre-Me Too, very pre-Me Too. Right. Even before she filed the lawsuit at Kleiner Perkins, she had been voicing concerns about harassment at the company since, you know, she started working there in 2005. I think she said like two years later, um, she started seeing some of these issues. And Kleiner Perkins, you know, that was like the good guy. And I first learned about them when I worked for Bill Clinton and they were the, you know, they were the wealthy venture capital firm that did good things on climate change and they were supposed to be the progressives, right? So to take, to, to take them on is a tough thing. It is interesting. You know, you always say that you went into the workplace thinking that women didn't have so much more to push up against and that yep. the, the preceding generation of women had handled that for you. Yes. Well, imagine me. I really thought that. <laughs> and <laughs> what she brought up, I just like had this memory. She brought up a like a wardrobe thing where she at her first law yeah. firm, um, a woman was sent home because she was wearing pants. And I remember like what was so stark for me when I realized like, oh my gosh, we have so much left to fight for was also a wardrobe thing when I was working really? local news. Oh, in Appleton, of- Wisconsin? In Appleton, Wisconsin, but this was actually when I was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Shout out to ABC 27. Um, well, all the women were told that we couldn't wear sleeveless dresses, even in like 95 degree weather when we were outside all day reporting because it was too risque or, you know, our more conservative audiences wouldn't like it. And all the men were like allowed to do whatever they wanted. Like, and we yeah. were told we had to wear certain colors and it was just so awful. What about all the sleeveless dresses at Fox News? I, I mean, I know. It was just an arbitrary <laughs> rule. And I was just like, yeah, it was just brought that back to me. But now at the recount, you wear whatever you want. Now you now never I'm, leave your home. Now so I wear whatever I want. I'm wearing like yoga pants right now. <laughs> it's a cute sweater. Thanks. 
Thank you to Ellen Powell for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castor-Russell is our executive producer. 